This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 14th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Alexa Billow talks with Kelly Servick about releasing modified mosquitoes into the wild. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. We cannot produce this podcast without the help of listeners like you. Become a member of AAAS, the world's largest multidisciplinary scientific membership organization and publisher of the Science Family of Journals this month and receive a free AAAS backpack. Visit AAAS.org slash support science to become a member today. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on a bacterium found deep in a gold mine. I love it when biologists go mining for bacteria. You just never know what they're going to come up with. In this case of the gold mine bacteria, they live off of an unusual energy source. And no, it's not gold. <laughs> it's radioactive uranium. This is a microbe with a scientific name, Desulfurutus audaxviator. These guys live really deep underground, actually 2.8 kilometers underground. And when you get that deep, you really don't have a lot of light, oxygen, or even carbon, all the things you really need to live. And so the question was, well, how are these guys surviving? They are not using photosynthesis, and they're not eating things that use photosynthesis, which are the two main methods for getting energy on this planet. Right. They've sort of taken this third path. And basically what they're doing is they're relying on the radioactivity coming off this uranium. Basically, the radiation from this decaying uranium breaks apart sulfur and water molecules that are really deep in this mine. And this produces these fragments that are excited with internal energy. And basically what the micro does is it takes in these molecules, siphons off that energy, that extra energy, and that's what gives it sort of the energy to live, to reproduce, and even to repair itself because it lives off this radiation, but it's also kind of being killed by this radiation too. And so it needs to spend a lot of its energy fixing itself. Okay. And the story basically moves on and says, oh, great. Third way of maintaining life on Earth. But anyway, what, let's talk about outer space <laughs> now. Right. We always have to talk about outer space. Um, and so what's really interesting is it, this led the researchers to this idea that, well, hey, if we've got this bizarre microbe on Earth that can live this way, could that be a possible way that alien life forms can live? And not necessarily off radioactive elements, but off something called cosmic rays, which are these high energy particles that careen through the universe 
after being flung out of supernova. And they're everywhere. And even cosmic rays are hitting Earth, but our atmosphere is really protecting us from most of them. But when you talk about planets like Mars or moons like Jupiter's moon Europa, or even dwarf planets like Pluto, these are planets that are getting hit with a lot of cosmic rays, but don't have the atmosphere to filter them out. So potentially, there could be, theoretically, life forms on the surface that might be feeding off these cosmic rays. And this is where some of the science is done in this research. They modeled how much of this energy the bacteria would need to survive. And what did they find? What planets should we be looking at? Well, the places that I mentioned, and especially Mars, would be a good candidate. But we're not talking about beings like us, (laughs) you know, the size of us feeding off cosmic rays. They're saying that there's only enough energy that could be harvested off cosmic rays. that You would probably have organisms very similar to this organism we see on Earth. Now, they're not going to get any bigger than a bacterium, probably, because there is this danger from cosmic rays. So there has to be this balance between eating this energy and also repairing yourself from it, right? That's right. That's the big trade-off here because too many cosmic rays are obviously going to kill you. Next up, we have a story on uncovering ancient bear dogs. These are neither bears nor dogs. So what are bear dogs, Dave? (laughs) Well, they're called bear dogs because they look a little bit like a combination of a bear and a dog. And you can see a picture or at least an illustration of one on the site. But they are only really distantly, very distantly related to these animals. They've got the scientific name amphicyonids. They're, in fact, a very strange group of creatures that first came on the scene about 40 million years ago. Some were about the size of a chihuahua, and some were as large as actually one of today's bears. The news here is that there's some new information that came out from fossils that have been hiding in a museum. What do these fragments tell us about bear dogs? Well, these are some about 38 million-year-old fossils that were found in southwestern Texas. They were actually found in the mid-1980s. They really hadn't been classified because they were very fragmentary, very hard to figure out exactly what they were. But in this new study, scientists suspected they may be bear dogs. And what they did is they applied some new techniques like 3D scanning, which really gave a more complete sense of the internal features of these fossils. And the internal features matched features that we know belong to bear dogs. So the scientists say these are two specimens of bear dogs. One is about the size of a chihuahua one about the size of a house cat, so slightly larger. And this makes them among the oldest specimens of bear dogs that we have. So this tells us a little bit more about their distribution and the age of these particular size examples of them? That's right. And this area, this part of Texas actually seems to be sort of a hotbed of bear dog evolution because there's been other specimens found around this area, which suggests that there was a lot of sort of an explosion of different kinds of bear dogs happening. Now, we know bear dogs eventually were found throughout North America, also in Asia and Europe. So it's possible they spread out from this point to other parts of the globe. Do we know why these animals went extinct? There aren't any modern bear dogs. There aren't any modern bear dogs, but speaking of dog dogs, (laughs) (laughs) what scientists do think is that the ancestors, or maybe the very distant ancestors of today's dogs and even of today's cats, may have outcompeted bear dogs because they were just more well-adapted. Bear dogs tended to be very flat-footed, weren't super agile on the ground, but ancestors of dogs and cats were a lot more agile. And as the world changed, as the world cooled, some of these other animals may have outcompeted bear dogs. Lastly, we have a story on when we care about airplane crashes. This story is really about how 
attention works online, what we read about and when we read about it. People definitely pay attention to airplane crashes, but sometimes it seems like it's only a blip on the radar. How can we know how much attention people are, are paying to these things, Dave? One way is to go to one of the most popular sites online, which is Wikipedia, and try to figure out, well, how many page views are articles about these crashes getting? Not only how many page views did they get immediately after the crash, because these articles tend to go up very quickly, but in the days and the weeks following the crash. What did the researchers realize about airplane crash attention when they analyzed these Wikipedia pages? Yeah, so they basically took a lot of Wikipedia pages from a lot of airplane crashes, and they tried to figure out when they were viewed, how many times they were viewed, and sort of how that viewership changed over time. And what they found was that, first of all, if a crash involved fewer than 50 deaths, it didn't attract a lot of online attention. People just didn't seem to care about it. They didn't judge it maybe a big enough disaster to warrant their attention. But once you got over 50 deaths, these became sort of more what's called high impact events. And you did start to see this spike in readership for articles about them. But what was interesting is the spike was pretty short lived. Within a week, people kind of stopped paying attention to these articles. Right. Were there any differentiating characteristics that showed people paid different attention to different types of crashes? So perhaps not surprisingly, English Wikipedia readers were much more likely to read about North American and European crashes versus Spanish Wikipedia readers, which were much more likely to read about Latin American crashes. But the other thing that was surprising was that even after you got over this 50-death threshold, the bigger the crash didn't necessarily translate into more online attention. There was just sort of like, there wasn't a correlation. Like it was just, is it a small crash? Is it a big crash? It didn't really matter whether 100 people died or 300 people died. There wasn't really any more attention paid to crashes as deaths went up. Hmm. Well, what do the researchers suggest is the reasons for this loss of attention? One is this idea of this decay of novelty. I mean, something's new, you want to read about it, and then it quickly becomes old and it doesn't interest you anymore. But also, we just tend to have short attention spans, especially when it comes to online, when there's this huge amount of information out there. And so, so many other events are competing for our attention. So it's just, it's really hard to stay focused on one particular thing. All right, Dave, let's hear what else is on the site this week. Well, Sarah, we've got a story about why naked mole rats don't feel pain or don't feel uh, many types of pain and what that could mean for new pain drugs for us. Also a story about how spending just a short amount of time at high altitudes can radically transform your body, especially your blood cells, changes that could last up to four months. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we got a story about the future of the 30-meter telescope. This is the giant telescope that was supposed to be built on the big island of Hawaii, but has been ensnared in legal and cultural battles. Also a story about why Russia has suspended a nuclear research and development pact with the United States. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Now we have our intern, Alexa Billow, talking about releasing modified mosquitoes into the wild. Insecticides have never worked very well against Aedes aegypti, the species of mosquito that transmits the Zika virus, as well as yellow fever, dengue fever, and chikungunya. Some scientists hope to fight it by releasing billions of designer mosquitoes. They would carry either a lethal gene that can cause populations to crash, or a helpful bacterium that protects mosquitoes from viral invaders. In Brazil, 
Zika and dengue fever are everyday realities. Kelly Cervik has just returned from a trip to Brazil to witness a mosquito release as part of this week's package on mosquito control. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you were in Brazil looking at these organizations that are releasing mosquitoes. Set the scene for us. What, what was this like? Yeah, so I visited two different mosquito release projects in two very different cities. One of them was a neighborhood called Jurujuba, which is in the city of Niteroi, which is right across the water from Rio de Janeiro. So it was a neighborhood without a great infrastructure that consisted of really sort of tightly packed houses on these steep concrete hillsides. And that's one of the neighborhoods where this nonprofit called Eliminate Dengue is releasing its disease-fighting mosquitoes. And then the other one was a city called Piracicaba, which is a couple hours outside of Sao Paulo, that was relatively wealthy and had more of a sort of a tourist industry. And Piracicaba is the first city in Brazil that's sort of investing in Oxitec, which is the company that makes these transgenic mosquitoes. So you mentioned the two different organizations. They seem to have very different strategies. So we'll start with Oxitec. Can you describe their strategy from a scientific point of view? They're using the TET promoter system, which in molecular biology is a really common tool, but it seems like they found a way to hack it. The basic idea is that they'll genetically modify this Aedes aegypti mosquito, which is the mosquito that's the main vector for dengue fever, but also chikungunya and also Zika virus, so that it carries this gene that sort of gums up their cellular machinery. They figured out that if they made this transcriptional activator, this TTAV, drive its own expression, then it ended up making so much of this protein that it was just binding to all of the important transcriptional proteins and basically preventing the cell from making really important proteins that it needed to survive. And mosquitoes that are raised in the lab are feeding on this antibiotic that sort of blocks the activity of this transcriptional activator that they use. But when they get released, they release males who mate with females in the wild, and their offspring who carry that gene don't have this sort of antidote. So they end up dying before they can become flying adults and before they can bite any people. So the goal is just to wipe out as many mosquitoes in the population as possible. Meanwhile, Eliminate Dengue is taking a very different track, both scientifically and in terms of their distribution. How is their model different? So Eliminate Dengue is based on the discovery that this bacterium called Wolbachia, which is thought to occur naturally in a lot of insects, can actually prevent Aedes aegypti from becoming infected with dengue or Zika or chikungunya and thus sort of unable to transmit it in their saliva when they bite. So I say in the story, you know, if the Oxitec mosquitoes are sort of on a suicide mission, then the Eliminate Dengue mosquitoes are sort of mosquito missionaries, right? They're not trying to cut down the population, but they're sort of trying to spread this trait of disease resistance to the whole population. So the Oxitec mosquitoes, they breed and then they die. So they don't make any permanent changes to the gene pool. Instead, you buy more mosquitoes and release them every year. What are the benefits of that strategy? Yeah, you know, it's sort of the nature of the technology, right, that you're going to have to keep releasing these mosquitoes or else the small remaining population is just going to rebound again to wherever it was before. I think the upside is that, you know, you're not introducing some permanent genetic change into the population, like you said. And, you know, a lot of people told me that that really went a long way for Oxitec in even allowing them to do these field trials and test it out because already all of this technology is really unprecedented. It's really hard to get through regulators in various countries. And as we've seen in the U.S., it's really hard to sort of gain public acceptance in some cases for a transgenic approach. 
So I think Oxitec has sort of had the advantage of being able to test out a mosquito control strategy because there's this sort of limiting factor. But it's true that people are going to have to continue to pay. Health departments are going to have to continue to pay for this strategy over time if they want to continue to suppress mosquito populations. The science behind how these mosquitoes should work is rock solid. But do we have epidemiological evidence that they actually do work out in the field? So the short answer is that we don't have evidence that either of these strategies actually reduce the number of people that are getting infected with these mosquito-transmitted diseases year to year. You know, Oxitec has evidence that its mosquitoes reduce population dramatically, and Eliminate Dengue has evidence that they can spread this parasite through the population and keep it there, and that it in the lab it suppresses the virus. But if you wanted to do an epidemiological study, you would have to sort of randomize different areas to either receive mosquitoes or not receive them. And the sort of messy thing about that is that people don't stay put in those two groups, right? Anytime you go somewhere for work or you travel outside of this treated area, you're being exposed to all of the risks of the untreated area. And so as a result, these trials need to be really big and they end up being really costly in order to be meaningful. Eliminate Dengue has already started one efficacy trial like that in Indonesia that covers, I think, more than 300,000 people in these various areas. And Oxitec is also sort of starting to strategize about how they might do a trial like that. But it's not a small thing. So it's not surprising that we don't have that information yet, but it's an important piece of information to get. And so in the meantime, without these big epidemiological studies, they are still going ahead with these pilot experiments. They are, and they're sort of scaling up the work that they're doing in Brazil and in other places in the hopes that they can get, you know, other kinds of evidence that this is working as they sort of work up to this, these other sorts of studies. So right now, the releases that Oxitec is doing, the way that they sort of measure how it's working is by setting out egg traps and then counting the number of larvae that they find in the traps as an estimate for how the adult mosquito population might be changing. And so they've seen in most of their trials greater than 90% reduction. That's what they've reported based on this particular measure. It turns out that, at least with Aedes aegypti, from what scientists understand about it, it doesn't take very many mosquitoes to transmit disease in a really susceptible population. So it's really hard to know what the threshold is in the real world of how much to reduce the population before you can be confident that there's not disease transmission. It's a tricky problem, and there have been models, but like I said, there hasn't been a field test of that yet. Do you see either of these strategies that you reported on being employed in the United States or elsewhere in the world anytime soon? Yeah, well, so talking about the U.S., there is already a different Wolbachia approach that's sort of supposed to reduce mosquito populations that's already been tested in the U.S. There were releases this summer in California, actually. As for the GM mosquitoes, Oxitec got the go-ahead from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration this summer for a field trial in Key West, Florida, which a lot of people have probably heard about because there's a lot of local opposition to doing that. So I believe that they're holding some kind of non-binding referendum in November that will inform the decision of the Mosquito Control Board in that case. So we'll just have to see what happens. So you actually saw mosquitoes released. Was that really majestic to see them flying off into the wild? I have to say it wasn't quite as majestic as I had imagined. Here's how they get released. The Oxitec mosquitoes get released from this plastic Tupperware container, like a takeout container, and they drive around in a van with a like a hole in the side of it, and they just open the 
little tubs and shake the mosquitoes out and they come out in these little clouds and they disperse very quickly so it's not like a plague of mosquitoes descends on the city. And then actually most of Eliminate Dengue's mosquitoes are released as eggs so they just take these little white buckets and they set them in little nooks and crannies outside people's houses and then they just leave them there. So you never actually find out when the mosquitoes escape or what becomes of them. Brave volunteers. Yeah, the public outreach piece of this is super interesting. And I did get to visit a few people in their houses and just ask that question, like, is it weird that you are releasing even more mosquitoes in this? Like, does that feel uncomfortable to you? Are you worried about it? The few people that I talked to really trusted the project and were really optimistic that this was going to prevent disease. Also, a lot of people I talked to had had dengue or Zika, or both. I talked to one person that had dengue and then Zika over the course of a couple months. So people are desperate for, for new strategies. Kelly, thanks so much for talking with us today. Anytime. Kelly Servic writes about mosquito control strategies being implemented in Brazil. You can read the full story as part of our mosquito control package in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.